Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, Rob Long, was a young man with a bright future. Set to play football on the national stage, he was diagnosed with an astrocytoma and given a very poor prognosis. That was in 2010. In 2023, he beat the odds and is now a nationally recognised advocate for rare disease. Here to tell his story is Rob Long. I'm delighted to welcome you to the Health Design Podcast. I want to start our conversation in 2010s. On the morning of Thanksgiving, what happened to you and how did things unfold from there? That morning I woke up and... It was the first time in my life where I felt like I had really lost control of my own body. I woke up and was very sick. I was throwing up almost nonstop for about two hours and hadn't really done anything that would have warranted that. I wasn't out the night before, hadn't eaten anything particularly strange, just woke up, immediately felt sick to my stomach and went into the bathroom and was vomiting probably for I think the better part of two hours and after the first couple times there's not much left in your stomach other than stomach acid and it was not a pleasant experience and I finally had stopped and my body had settled down enough for me to to down to the team facilities. I was playing football at Syracuse University at the time and saw the team doctors and I said, hey, I've just been really sick. I I don't know what's going wrong. I feel terrible. And they said, it's all right. Like, we'll we'll get you some toast and some Pepto-Bismol and see, you know, where things go from there. And I remember eating dry toast and Pepto-Bismol and the whole process starting over again. Started throwing that up. And I remember sitting on the floor of the locker room with tears in my eyes and then running down my face and just really not understanding what was happening. It was an awful experience and something that I just didn't really know what was going on. So there you were, a young man, an athletic young man with this persistent vomiting, which, as you tell the story, led to a very significant diagnosis. Tell us about your life just before that. Were you really as fit as as you described? Did you have any inkling that there was anything wrong with you before that point? So, if you rewind probably about 12 weeks prior to that the first game of our season and we flew from Syracuse New York on the east coast of the United States all the way to Seattle Washington on the west coast of the United States and after we got down from the flight and was back to the hotel room I started getting sick and that happened every time we had an away game which was about every two weeks And it was infrequent enough that we didn't think anything of it. And probably 
around that time, I started to have more regular, persistent headaches. But it was infrequent enough and would come and go enough where I didn't think much of it. I was also in the best shape of my life. I was playing Division One football and working myself up to play professionally. And I, I didn't really think anything of it. I, you know, thinking back to that morning of, of 2010, I played a football game three days later. And so I had been in good shape. I felt healthy enough to participate and to go out and do what I had done. What was going through the mind of the people around you, do you think, your coach and others? Every time you had an away game, you arrived and you were vomiting. Did they think that you were anxious? Did they think that there was something else going on in your life? Yes, they thought that I was nervous. And I was like, I've been doing this for four years now. I, I love playing football. This is the last thing that I'd be nervous about. But it was, again, it was just so infrequent, I guess, the, the days in between and you're in season. And there's so much happening where it's easy to do, to dismiss things and to ignore things until you can't. And that's ultimately what happened. And, you know, going through that season, I was... I, you know, I was okay until the end of the season when I, I started to really feel disoriented and to not have my normal balance and my normal, I guess, disposition of feeling stable and confident. And you know, things started and this doubt starts to, to eke into your brain. And I think that's what started to get really scary towards the days leading up to my diagnosis. Rob, tell us a little bit about yourself at that time. You were at the peak of your physical well-being. You were a star footballer. Tell us more about that. I was going into my senior season. I was pretty much at the point where I just had to continue to do what I had already been doing. And I was going to play professionally. There weren't a lot of questions about that. I was a two-time captain of the team. I pretty much had done everything in college up until that point to to set myself up to play professionally. I was very aware of my actions both on and off the field. I cared deeply about you know being a leader of the team and putting myself in a position to essentially leave no doubt that I was worthy of playing in the NFL. And I worked incredibly hard knowing that I'd always be the most talented, but I was going to put every ounce of effort in to being the best punter and kicker that I could be. So I was at a point where it was just like, just a little bit longer and you've reached the pinnacle of your sport. And I just, I feel like I, I was at the cusp and I was so close. You were in no doubt about your well-being. Were others around you in any way concerned? Was anyone thinking, this doesn't sound like Rob? This doesn't sound like the footballer that he is? My girlfriend at the time who I was dating, 
she was probably the only one that knew what I was going through day in and day out. There were things that I didn't always share with the training staff. I would just walk in and grab Advil and not necessarily tell them that I have a headache again or that I'm having trouble seeing or that the lights seem awfully bright. So all these things that I wasn't really communicating because I was 21 years old and I figured everything's fine. I just need to, you know, get through whatever this thing is that I'm dealing with and I'll be fine. But there did come a day after that Thanksgiving morning where my girlfriend at the time basically stopped me in in the street and she said, I'm not going to talk to you until you go talk to a doctor. And she kind of put this ultimatum of, you need to talk to the team doctors. You need to tell them everything that you're experiencing and let them make the decision whether you need further testing or need help or anything along those lines. So she was really responsible for me going to the team doctors and and sharing this because I was a stubborn, hard-headed 21-year-old that felt that I was invincible and that there really wasn't possibly anything that could be that wrong with me. We hear this story a lot, Rob. Young people who are really relying on their advocates, relying on the people at home to point out to professionals that something isn't quite right. Do you think it was her advocacy that eventually led to them pursuing the diagnosis or do you think that they then realized when they examined you that things were not at all right? I think that when they had a full understanding of my symptoms, I think that they felt that they needed to do some more testing. And that is ultimately what led to me getting that initial MRI was I shared everything. I said, you know, I, you know, they knew I obviously had been sick on that Thanksgiving morning. And, you know, I talked to them more about the headaches and the sensitivity to light, um, the balance issues. And they basically said to me, all right, well, we would like to start ruling things out. And the first step in ruling things out because of the symptoms you've described would be to get an MRI. And so we're going to send you for an MRI at the local hospital and we'll go from there. And I, to be honest, never thought twice and said, okay, sounds good. Like I'll go get an MRI. And that was what really started this journey in a completely different direction than what I had anticipated for myself. So it largely was based on the history, the history that you were able to give, prompted by your partner to say, I've been vomiting, I've had problems with light sensitivity, I've had problems with balance. Were there any physical findings when they examined you or did you know? I had no physical like manifestations of any sort that would have led them to believe that anything was wrong with me. I think it was just everything that I was describing. And then I remember when I went in to get the MRI, I walked into the the hospital and I, I actually had called my mom to help, uh, to have her help me fill out the paperwork because I this is the first time I've ever had an MRI. It was the first time I'd ever done anything like this by myself. And 
I went into the hospital, filled the paperwork out, went in for what I thought would be a routine MRI. And I laid down on the, the table and was pushed back into the machine. I remember the MRI machine starting and within probably five minutes, I remember the, radio, uh, the radiologist coming back out and she said, everything's okay. We just need a couple more tests and just through some other things. And I was able to, to see her and she looked ghost white. She looked panicked and a little almost disoriented. And all I could think of at that time was, I think there's something wrong with her and I don't know what it is. And here she saw what I would later see the next day. And she saw my, my brain scan for the first time. And uh, it revealed a, a tumor that took up a, a, a quarter of my brain and was quite large. And basically, I think for her, she was trying to figure out how it calculated that I was the person that was in that machine that walked in there and was seemingly normal, yet had this tremendously large growth in my brain. You are listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa. I can just imagine how that poor woman was feeling, given that I'm a physician and how do you break that kind of news to someone? How was that news broken to you? Well, I think the hardest part was that she couldn't break that news to me is that she had to complete the testing. I had to have the contrast dye put in my arm. And all the while, I think she was really trying hard to not alert me of anything being wrong with me. And I think she did a great job of that because the only person that I thought was sick when I left was her. And I was able to get up and say, well, you know, thank you. And, you know, I hope you have a good rest of your day. And she was like, yeah, just, just take care of yourself. Like, I hope everything's okay. And I, again, I just didn't think twice about it. And then I remember later that day, I went back to the the same doctors that had ordered the MRI from the team. And I walked into the office and the entire training staff, a handful of my coaches were in the room. And I remember walking in and, and cracking a joke um, about seeing all these people in here. And nobody laughed, which was a little alarming for me. And I sat down with the doctor and he just told me, and I, I vividly remember the words that he chose. And he said, you have a large growth in your brain. And it didn't hit me. It didn't, it didn't make sense. And he just said that you need to see a neurosurgeon first thing in the morning. We're going to get that set up. But in the meantime, you need to call your parents. And knowing what my mom's reaction was going to be, I elected to call my dad first to hopefully soften the blow, called my dad and he told me that he was actually on his way into work at that, that time. He had just left my mom at my aunt's house 
and she was just collecting herself because my mom's youngest sister, my aunt Chrissy, had just been diagnosed with breast cancer a few hours prior. And I was like, well, I, I hate to do this to you, but I don't have much better news. The doctors found a large growth in my brain and I have to see a neurosurgeon in the morning. And, you know, I, I don't know what else is going to happen, but this, is, this has been told. And I remember one of the, the staff members from the football team drove me to pick up my girlfriend at the time and, and to talk to her. And in the car ride over, it was just myself and the staffer. And I remember him turning to me and saying, I can't believe you have a brain tumor. And I thought to myself, I was like, well, that's not what I was told. I was told there was a large growth. And I guess I didn't think of this as a tumor. And that's when I was like, oh, this is, this is not good. And the next morning, I went to the neurosurgeon and I remember walking into the exam room and up on the screen was my MRI. And I remember walking into that room. I'd never seen a brain MRI before. I'd never seen an MRI of anything before. And I remember trying to, I guess, do what I always try to do and make a joke or try and make things a little lighter. And I said, you know, what am I looking at here? And what was on the screen was a top view of my of my head. So imagine looking down from almost a sky view of my brain. And so you could see in a normal brain four quadrants with the ventricles, you know, dividing up the four corners of the, the brain or the four quadrants of the brain. Uh, mine did not look like that. It was, there was just a large white mass that crowded everything else and just it kind of just looked like a blob. And he said, well, that white mass is, that's not supposed to be there. And the trainer, the trainer that was with me said that. And so before the doctor even came into the room, it hit me like, like a ton of brick, like what was actually happening. And I was like, oh, I have a, a very large brain tumor. And I think that was the first time that I, I really was, had any kind of an understanding of how severe this was. And it really took me back. And I think I just remember sitting there and started to cry. And I was like, I, I'm going to die, aren't I? And nobody was really able to tell me otherwise. And I remember the doctor coming into the room and he said to me, no, this is what we're dealing with. I, I can't tell you what it is. I can't tell if you tell you if it's cancerous or benign, but I can tell you that you need to have surgery very soon. And he asked me where I was from and I told him I was from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And he said, you need to go home and be with your family. There's a lot of good hospitals there and you need to go get this taken care of at home. And a couple hours later, I was on a flight back to Philadelphia to see my parents and to, to figure out what my next steps were. Rob, I, I can't imagine how harrowing this was for you and for your family and for your poor mom who was dealing already with somebody else who was ill in the family. Yeah. What was their reaction when you arrived back home? Shock, I think. 
I think most of us were in a state of just being shell shocked for I'm a month. I, it was it was something that I remember that that exam room sitting in there. That was December second, two thousand and ten. Uh, so a week later, after after the everything happened on Thanksgiving, and I just remember going home, and you know my parents were happy to see me and glad I was with them. But I think everybody was just trying to figure out what is going on, and I was able to get an appointment with the the head of neurosurgery at uh, Jefferson University Hospitals in Philadelphia, and I remember going into that appointment and really trying to find somebody that could give me any piece of good news because from the time that they found that tumor and I saw it nobody at any point told me what was going to happen and so every night for almost a week and a half I was alone in my bedroom crying myself to sleep, figuring I wouldn't wake up the next day. I just thought I was, it was a matter of days before I died. And nobody told me that's not how this is going to work. That this is going to be a long, drawn out, painful, emotionally and physically draining process. And I think that started to settle in and that adrenaline wears off and the emotion of what is happening sets in and, and going through that for days on end and then meeting with the doctor and him saying well you know we're gonna cut your head open we're gonna pull the tumor out and we're gonna biopsy the tumor and we're gonna see what we're dealing with but in the meantime like you know just do what you can and and stay positive and you know, we'll go from there. And so I think there was elements of just really trying to understand what was happening and trying to process that days, weeks earlier, I was playing football at Syracuse, having the time of my life. And I literally had no major concerns other than what NFL team I was going to have the opportunity to play for. It's almost a fatuous thing to say, isn't it? Stay positive, go home, let's see how all of this unfolds. How <laughs> did you do that? How did you manage to get through those difficult, difficult days? You just have to. There's not a lot of things you try to or can do at that time. You just know that you have to. You know that tomorrow's another day and going to make the most of every day, every hour, every minute that I have and see what the future holds. And there was a couple moments that were pretty surreal where, you know, I'm sitting on the couch with my dad just trying to watch sports and you know, across the bottom of the screen, the little news ticker goes across on ESPN and, you know, it, it's gotten me and Rob Long from Syracuse University diagnosed with a brain tumor, you know, set to have surgery and all of this other stuff. And it was very surreal to experience that. But 
the biggest thing was that you just had to. And I, I remember in all of this, one of the best days of my life was actually December 19th. 2010. So I was diagnosed and I got my uh, diagnosis on December 20th, the following day. I, I essentially at that point knew what was coming. I didn't know what exactly was coming, but it was six days after my surgery. I had a meeting at, with an oncologist, which probably wasn't a good sign. <laughs> and I remember for the first time, all my friends were home and we were in my friend's basement and it was the first time in 17 days since this all started when they first found that tumor. It's the first time in 17 days where I didn't think about what the next day was going to bring. I didn't think about the tumor in my head. I didn't think about what the diagnosis was going to be. It was just an opportunity to hang out with my six or seven best friends from high school and talk about literally anything else. And they treated me like I was everybody else and just like one of them and nobody brought up anything that I was dealing with. And I remember leaving that night feeling so rejuvenated and, and so kind of hopeful. And I could guarantee that the other people in that room, it is probably one of the most insignificant nights of their life. But for me, it was that sense of normalcy that I, I craved so bad at that time where everything was different. Everything was out of control. But being in that spot where nobody cared about what was going to happen to me. And I mean that in, a, in the best way possible. But nobody was thinking about that. And it was just we we're just just hanging out and just talking about whatever you know, a group of guys talks about when they're 22 years old. And for me, I think in all of this, when I think back to everything I went through, I think of these positives that I experienced and the things that I learned along the way and, you know, the things that matter. And in the midst of all of this, I just remember being so happy and laughing, like, like hard stomach laughs for the first time in I, I couldn't even remember in weeks and so that was kind of this this interesting dynamic of less than 12 hours later i was sitting in an exam room with an oncologist telling me that i had a grade three anaplastic astrocytoma my mom collapsed on the floor started crying and the doctors told me there's no cure for what you have. And that was just, it was surreal. It was, it didn't, it didn't feel like that was possible. I was 22. I was so healthy. There was, there was no way that this, this was it. Like this, this is it. And it was a really difficult thing to, to see how emotional my parents were and my family was. And to know that that I was the cause of that directly or indirectly. And so it was it was just a, a very bizarre time to 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 live through and to honestly even recount now. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration 
amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. Rob, it's 2023, and clearly that was not true, that you were not going to make it. This is a dark place we're in. <laughs> so let's brighten it up again. Yeah. You had the treatment. What was the treatment and how did it turn out that that surgeon or that oncologist wasn't correct in his assessment? So at the time of my diagnosis, I learned that the five-year survival rate of my cancer was 15%. The doctors essentially told my parents that they would expect me to live probably another 36 months. And as you said, we're sitting here, it's 2023. And how did I get here? I went through 14 months of, of chemotherapy. I received my life limit of, of radiation to my brain. I went through, of that 14 months, there was 12 months of that chemo cycle, which was 28 day cycles. They would be 23 days of recovery, five days of chemotherapy. And I did that every day for, or every month for a year. And the physical and emotional toll was, is incredible. And going through all of this, it, it taught me so much about the human body and the human spirit and what we're capable of enduring and living through. And I remember getting that first clean MRI in 2011, and I still had a long way to go through chemotherapy, but it was at least a point that most people do not get to where they, they had this MRI and there was just no, no signs of the tumor. And I was at that point, five, six months post surgery, and that was unheard of. And I still had a long ways to go with the treatment, the chemotherapy, and, and I eventually completed that in 2012. And from there, it was just a, a series of MRIs and checkups every two months for a year, every three months for a year, or a couple of years. And then I still, to this day, I'm 12 years removed, I go every four months just to check. And it's taken me, the physical part was tough. The mental and emotional part has taken me a very long time. And it was eight years after my initial diagnosis of the brain tumor that I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. And as crazy as it might seem is that was probably one of the best things that I'd ever heard because I knew all these things that I was feeling. It wasn't me. It wasn't my fault. It was just a, a symptom of, of what I had lived through. And having that diagnosis, that post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis, it allowed me to, to take action and to seek therapy and treatment. And it's allowed me to be in a spot where today I can talk with you about the worst days of my life. And it's okay. Uh, because I'm okay. And I think that's kind of the beautiful thing about, you know, we talk about the dark story that we just discussed, but I can sit here with a smile on my face and share this with you, knowing that I'm a better person for what I have been through. And I've learned a tremendous amount of lessons 
through this experience. And I feel unbelievably lucky and grateful to be here, to be able to share my experience, share what I've learned and hopefully provide some perspective and understanding for others of, of what this is like to go through. But also that no matter what your your challenge is, no matter what your obstacle is, that there is a way through. And you know, we as people, as humans, are are capable of unbelie- unbelievably amazing things. Rob, I think it's actually our listeners who are the ones who are extraordinarily lucky to have you tell us the story. And thank you for pointing out that the treatment wasn't just physical treatment as in the chemotherapy, the radiotherapy and the surgery and whatever else, it was also the attention to your well-being. It was the attention to your ability to reframe this experience. And yes, post-traumatic stress disorder was clearly an important diagnosis because there's then an effective treatment for that. Correct. And that's where it's been so helpful for me to be able to go through that because, you know, what I do today in the work that I have that I'm able to do with uplifting athletes is, is so rewarding, but it's also, it also requires me to talk about this. And I've been working at uplifting athletes now for a little over six years. And it's something that I, I love. I'm incredibly passionate about the work that we do. But in the early days of working here, it was so difficult because I was not in a a spot mentally or emotionally where I could relive and recount all of this and then go back to work or go and do the thing that I needed to do with my day. And being able to understand what was happening, be able to work to address that honestly changed you know my life and it's something that i want to advocate and to share because it's something that i wish somebody had shared with me so my hope is that we're able to communicate this in a way that you know it's it's okay to to acknowledge that your mental health isn't where it needs to be and that we can you know there's resources and things that we can do to address that. And, you know, it took a long time after those clean MRIs for me to feel like I was healthy again. And, and I think that's hard for people to understand when they, you know, you've been cancer free for, you know, how many years now? And, and, you know, what could possibly be wrong? And I think that was the biggest thing was that I was, you know, free. I was, you know, physically looked healthy but I had been to hell and back and, you know, nobody gives you the uh, instructions for what that ride is like. That is such an even valuable reflection, Rob, particularly in the light of the fact that we become so mechanistic in medicine that you see somebody with pathology and you think, well, all we've got to do is take away this, that, or the next thing and they'll be fine. But of course, what we don't take into account is the human behind all of that. The person who has to live this life. 
I want to touch back to the person who you mentioned earlier who was so badly impacted by this, your mom. Can you tell us a little bit about how she's doing? She's great. She's an unbelievably strong woman. There's so much that I envy about her and her ability to be happy and to to carry on and to be an incredibly caring and loving woman who she's somebody that that has been through a lot. Uh, my aunt and I who were diagnosed the same day, she went through breast cancer treatment for four years, was in remission in, in 2015, five years after my diagnosis, was diagnosed with a primary brain tumor and passed away in less than 12 months. So my mom is somebody that lost both her parents. Her father passed away at, at the age of 36 from a brain tumor. Her mom passed away from breast cancer and she lost her older brother to testicular cancer, lost her oldest sister to breast cancer and lost her youngest sister to brain cancer and then had me who was diagnosed. And so I'm the only one that has survived in my family. And that was something that I was dead set on doing because I wanted to do that for my mom and for my dad. And they have an incredible support system in each other. But she's doing great. My my dad's doing great and my family as well. We've been through a lot, but as I said before, we are stronger and closer for what we have gone through. Rob, how can we support the work that you are now doing? Where to from here for you and how can we get involved? I am the executive director of an organization called Uplifting Athletes. Our mission is to harness the power of sport to build a community that invests in the lives of people impacted by rare diseases. We work with athletes at all levels to help them leverage the platform that they have to utilize that platform to then support the rare disease community. As an organization, we believe in investing in the future, both in the future advocates of the rare disease community, but really the future researchers of the rare disease community. We developed a very unique event called the Young Investigator Draft, where we draft the top up and coming researchers in an NFL style event and we give them research grants and support their work. And essentially what we're trying to do is plant seeds throughout the rare disease community with these researchers. We launched this program in 2018. And since it launched in 2018, probably one of the things I'm most proud of is this event and the fact that we've been able to partner with 33 different patient advocacy organizations to fund 44 different researchers and over $820,000 in research grants. And it's something that is incredibly special to me because it is these researchers, it is these types of individuals that are the reason that I'm still here. Chemotherapy that I took was developed nearly 30 years prior to my diagnosis. And yet it was FDA approved just just a couple before I was diagnosed. And so this investment in the future of the rare disease community is something that is incredibly important to me. 
people can learn more about the organization through our website at upliftingathletes.org. They can follow on social media, uh, pretty much at Uplifting Athletes across the social media platforms. And obviously always welcome to follow me and the work that I do through social media as well. But we are really excited about what we are building with Uplifting Athletes. And my hope is that one day we are a global organization that is is working with sports all over the world to elevate the platform of the rare disease community and to continue to build and invest in the people that are impacted by rare diseases. Rob Long, you would have made an astonishing footballer. I think that your spirit is indomitable. You would have brought joy to football fans all over the place. But the work that you're now doing is impacting on people worldwide and you're making difference to the lives of people you may never meet. We very much are in your debt, Rob, and it's been more than a joy to spend time with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to, to speak with you. And thank you so much for providing me the opportunity and the platform to, to share my, my story with you. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com. <laughs>